Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. Civil rights and social justice groups have been grappling for years with ways to address hateful speech, harassment, and disinformation on Facebook. The issue is on the front burner again as major companies like Unilever and Starbucks are pausing their ads, the platform's source of revenue, as part of a coordinated effort to get Facebook to change policies that allow politicians and others to make false and incendiary claims. A Facebook security engineer quit in disgust when the platform refused to take down a post from Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro that said, quote, Indians are undoubtedly changing. They are increasingly becoming human beings just like us, close quote. That would seem to be a clear violation of internal guidelines against dehumanizing speech, but as revealed in a recent Washington Post expose, the engineer was told that it didn't qualify as racism and, quote, may have even been a positive reference to integration. Close quote. That sort of casuistry has marked Facebook's actions, and activists have heard enough. The group Free Press has been one of those working for change. We're joined now by Free Press co CEO Jessica Gonzalez. She joins us by phone from Los Angeles. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jessica Gonzalez. Hi, Janine. Thanks for having me. Well, it's worth stating at the outset that Free Press, like FAIR, opposes censorship, believes in the free flow of ideas, and in debate. That doesn't require acceptance of the promotion of dangerous medical misinformation, Holocaust denial, or instigations to violence against people protesting police brutality. We have to grapple with the tremendous influence of social media somehow. So that said, tell us about the Stop Hate for Profit campaign, which companies from Adidas to Williams-Sonoma are taking part in. What are the problems that the campaign is looking to address? You know, you're right, Janine. Free press stands for a free press. And we imagine a free press that frees people from oppression. We imagine a free press that holds the powerful accountable. So unlike calls for government to censor speech, The Stop Hate for Profit campaign is seeking for advertisers to vote with their feet, is seeking to hold up the really vast amount of hate, bigotry, and disinformation that is happening on Facebook's platform. Facebook has known about this problem. Our organizations have been in dialogue with Facebook for some time. We've been calling on them to institute a comprehensive change to keep people safe on the platform because we understand that when hate speech and disinformation flow on Facebook, that it puts people's lives at risk in real life and that it also makes it harder for people from historically oppressed groups to speak out when we speak out and face an onslaught of hate and harassment. So what the campaign is calling for is for all major advertisers on a global scale to drop their advertising on Facebook for the month of July. And we're now up to over 700 advertisers that have agreed to drop from Facebook, including Honda, Ford, 
Unilever, Coke, and other major brands that have essentially called on Facebook to meet our requests. And the interesting thing here is that the companies came along really easily because it's not good for their brands to be associated with the types of hate and disinformation that are running rampant on the platform. Well, it isn't that Facebook just allows extremist or toxic content. There's something, isn't there, in the business model that encourages polarization? You're absolutely right. 99% of Facebook's business model is advertising, and we are the products on Facebook. Facebook is selling access to us, consumers, individuals that use the platform. That's what they're selling to their advertisers. So how do they make the most money? By keeping us, their product, on the platform as much as possible. And we know that hate, harassment, and wild disinformation are the types of content that garner high attention and high engagement and keep us on the platform, even when we don't agree with those things and we're, in fact, fighting back against hate and disinformation, it's still generating time on the platform, engagement on the platform, and that is how they make their money. So, yes, this is built right into their business model, and until now, nobody's really been talking about that or or we've been talking about it, but it hasn't received the widespread attention that it's receiving in this moment. Well, the Wall Street Journal, some listeners may know, reported an internal Facebook report that executives got in 2018 that found that the company was well aware that its recommendation engine stoked divisiveness and polarization. But they ignored those findings because they thought any changes would disproportionately affect conservatives, which is just, I think... Mind-blowing. So this is not a problem that they don't know about. And the, and the journal also cites a separate report in 2016 that said that 64% of people who joined an extremist group on Facebook only did so because the company's algorithm recommended it to them. So this is, a, as you're saying, it's not, it's not passive. Right. It's, it's absolutely not. This is intentional. They've known these things. This reminds me of how the tobacco industry hid information about the damaging health effects of cigarettes back in the day. This is Facebook hiding information about the toxic effects of their own platform. And it's really shameful, frankly, that it's taken this much to get the attention onto what Facebook has been up to. Well, it's not passive, but it's also not equal opportunity. You know, it, it's, it sort of tends to go no. in one direction, right? You know, No, and this whole conservative bias, red herring that gets thrown out there as a reason for not to do anything ought to be really offensive to conservatives. Last time I checked, they haven't said that conservatism and anti-racism are opposites. Mm-hmm. I think this is a nonpartisan issue or at least it should be. We all have an interest, regardless of political party, race, religion, and whatnot, to end racism 
in our society. And to use this red herring as a reason not to is really immoral. It it seems relevant that a group of black workers at Facebook just filed a class action with the EEOC alleging that Facebook discriminates against black workers and applicants in hiring, evaluations, promotions, and pay. Black people are just 3.8% of Facebook's workforce, 1.5% of tech workers, and that hasn't increased even as the company's gone from 9,000 workers to nearly 45,000. One wonders how that company culture has bearing on their decision-making about when is something racist, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I'm not surprised at all that workers are facing discrimination inside of Facebook because the product itself is discriminatory. There's discriminatory algorithms at play, and there's a business model that is essentially hate profiteering. So this isn't much different than things I've thought about in the past with with like hate radio, for Mm -hmm. instance, Mm -hmm. some of these really hateful pundits that are often on iHeartRadio, that you hear a lot of complaints about hate and harassment within. This is a pervasive cultural issue at companies that trade in hate. Well, this June 28th Washington Post piece charts how Facebook shifted its policies to accommodate Trump. Uh, The engineer who quit in disgust, David Thiel, is quoted saying, the value of being in favor with people in power outweighs almost every other concern for Facebook. For Trump, that's meant that everything he says is newsworthy just because he said it, no matter how false or racist or inflammatory. And that carve-out for politicians is galling to people, but it's not, of course, the only problem. But that does seem to be a serious thing to simply say that because someone's a politician, they can say whatever they want. Right. I mean, this really speaks to the question of what are we talking about when we talk about a free press? When I think of a free press, I think of the fourth estate, one that holds the powerful accountable. And he's done just the opposite. There's a set of content moderation rules that users have to follow that the president doesn't and other powerful leaders. That's an incredibly big problem. The free press is supposed to hold power accountable. It's not supposed to give them a free ride. And frankly, it shows an appalling lack of awareness about the moment we're in, the cultural moment we're in, where we are reckoning with racism across the government, in our society, in our businesses, And in our own organizations and and minds, all of us need to be thinking about anti-Blackness in particular. And it shows that he's really not thinking about that. Or if he is, he's made a calculated decision to put profit over morals. Well, let's talk about some of the recommendations or, or next steps that the campaign has put forward. What would you like to see happen? What are some of the elements We have a number of recommendations that are on our website, stophateforprofit.org, but I'll highlight a few of them. Facebook needs a permanent civil rights infrastructure and accountability system inside the company. They need to comply with regular third-party audits that track 
how they are doing in complying with the civil rights infrastructure that needs to be built. And they need to overhaul their content moderation system, the Change the Terms Coalition, which is a coalition of over 55 civil rights and racial justice organizations, has put forth a comprehensive set of model policies aimed at Facebook and other social media companies. And we're asking them to ban hateful activities, to ban white supremacists, and to significantly invest in enforcement in transparency about their content moderation process in rights of appeal so that people of color and religious minorities and others who are protesting racism and hate are not the ones that get taken down, but in fact, it's actually the hate and proliferation of racism and recruitment into white supremacist groups that gets taken down. We're calling for Facebook to ban all state actor bots and troll campaigns that trade in hateful activities. And so we have a larger set of policy recommendations on stophateforprofit.org, including a call for Facebook to develop a hotline so that its users who are experiencing hate and harassment have somewhere to call to take care of when they're experiencing hate, much like you might call your internet service provider or your water company if you are having a problem there. So those are some of the policy changes that we're calling for from Facebook. Well, at the end of this Washington Post piece, we see Mark Zuckerberg saying Facebook is going to start labeling problematic, newsworthy content. I read somewhere they're talking about commissioning research on polarization Does this look like genuine engagement with the problems that you're talking about to you? And I wonder, you've been working with them, you know, (laughs) for so long. Do you think that they have evolved or has your way of engaging with them changed over time? And, and, And how real, how seriously do you think they're taking this right now? I think this is more chipping away at the edges and failing to do comprehensive reform. Mm -hmm. So If they think they're done, they're sorely mistaken. (laughs) And while I think it's like a step in the right direction, we're super tired of steps in the right direction. I don't know whether or not this is sincere. I think not. I think it's a response to all the bad PR uh, that they're experiencing and all the dissent they're feeling even inside the company. And while there are some things that I'm interested in tracking, for instance, They've claimed that they are going to ban hateful activities aimed at people based on immigration status. They've claimed they're not going to allow hate in ads. They claim they're going to apply their rules towards politicians. I frankly don't believe them because they've made a lot of promises over the years and failed to enforce them. Well, what finally comes next? What if they do the same kind of hand-waving that they've done in the past and nothing really changes? Where do we go from there? Well, that's a really good question. Right now, we are continuing to organize to move this campaign to the global level, so we will continue to levy advertiser pressure. And listen, you know, there's a real question over whether Facebook is just too damn powerful and whether we need further regulatory 
and legislative interventions to hold this company accountable to the people. And those are not off the table as far as Free Press is concerned. We've already called at Free Press for an ad tax on Facebook, taxing 2% of their profit and reinvesting that money back into quality local and independent news production to support reporters who are going to have to do the hard work of putting Facebook's hate in context and correcting the record on the disinformation that runs rampant on their sites. We've also called for robust reform in the privacy realm, and we have a piece of model legislation that we are recommending the U.S. Congress adopt to make sure that Facebook is not violating our privacy rights, our civil rights, and that the power about the kind and the ways that Facebook collects data about us and then monetizes our data is in the control of us, the people, and that we have more transparency about what they're collecting and that we have a private right of action when Facebook is violating our rights. So I think at a minimum, those need to be seriously considered now. And I think there's probably further interventions that need to happen in Congress uh, if Facebook refuses to comply with these demands. And perhaps even if they do comply, Mm -hmm. this really shines a light on just how powerful they are. We've been speaking with Jessica Gonzalez, co-CEO of the group Free Press. They're online at freepress.net, and you can learn more about this campaign at stophateforprofit.org. Jessica Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you for having me, Janine.
Hello and welcome to the TaxCast from the Tax Justice Network. I'm Naomi Fowler. Coming up later, how tax justice is justice for people of colour. States have choices. They have a choice point, and that's to cut services and continue to cut their budgets that harm families that are in need, or raise revenue. Raise revenue on corporations, raise revenue on those that are most profitable and the wealthy. And that's a racialized choice. We'll look at the United States and how tax justice can help address systemic racism. By the way, there's no research on this that I could find on the UK context. If you know any different, please let me know. Meanwhile, in the news this month, governments around the world are still bailing out companies with few or no conditions as nations try to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Protesters have been risking their health to fill the streets to stop police violence against and murder of people of colour and to call for deep societal change. And at the same time, in the United States, there's a huge looting process going on since the US administration is refusing to tell citizens which four and a half million businesses have received $500 billion worth of government bailouts. They say that what they're doing in the name of the public is confidential. That's similar in Britain, by the way, where billions have been granted in bailouts, but almost all of it's hidden from public view. Same situation in other countries too. As we've always said at the Tax Justice Network, companies should at the very least commit to publishing country-by-country reports on their genuine business activities, not using tax havens, not hiding who the real owners are, protecting their employees making sure there's no shareholder extraction and, you'd think it's obvious, they should be paying fair taxes. Let's talk to John Christensen now at the Tax Justice Network for his take on this month. OK, John, so this month I released research I've been working on for a long time. This is research on Britain's slave owners' compensation loan. And this is when the British government compensated slave owners, not the slaves, after they passed the Slavery Abolition Act in 1833. That debt was only settled by the government in 2015 on behalf of taxpayers, incredibly. And uh, my purpose with the research was to try to identify which financial institutions institutions were involved in restructuring the loan at various points, basically to hit them up for reparations money. And uh, you can read more about my research in this month's show notes. I haven't yet got to the smoking gun to be able to identify those banks and institutions which profited from the loan. But obviously, we, we know already that the City of London and Britain itself built its wealth from slavery and empire. We know still today that the city's finance sector has an extracted business model that impoverishes some of the world's poorest nations. We know financial secrecy is another form of empire. At the same time I released my research, events have obviously moved very fast with the Black Lives Matter movement. We've seen statues in Britain commemorating slave traders coming down. The Bristol slave trader Edward Colston has been toppled. Around the world, other statues have been toppled. Many others are now finally being moved to museums to be viewed in their proper shameful context. 
I didn't think I'd ever see that in my lifetime, to be honest. And uh, I didn't think I'd ever see big finance sector companies coming forward and making apologies. That is what is beginning to happen. We should be extremely sceptical. Some of these financial institutions say they're setting up what they're calling reparations funds to go some way to addressing the terrible injustices that they profited from. The insurer Lloyds of London is one of them, and several lawsuits were filed against them over the years by descendants of slaves in the US, and those failed. Now they're acknowledging what they should have done, could have done, a long, long time ago. On the funds themselves, we don't have the details yet. We need to make sure, obviously, that these institutions aren't just going to heap more pain on people by making insultingly small charity donations. I mean, how do we make sure that these funds are large and they're targeted in the right place and they're ongoing? Well, well, first of all, thanks for your blog, which was an eye-opener. Everyone I know who has read your blog is asking the same question. How did Britain reach this situation where the public was still paying interest 180 years later, on a loan taken out in 1834. And why were the slave owners being compensated for the fact that they were forced to stop running a slave economy, but the slaves themselves received no compensation whatsoever? Now, what makes this conversation even more painful is that after the Civil War, a few decades later in the United States, General Sherman issued a a special order providing for the freed slaves in in the southern states, to be granted 40 acres of land. This land was seized from the large Confederate uh, plantation owners. Um, But just months later, after President Lincoln was assassinated, his successor, Andrew Jackson, who, by the way, was a full-blown racist, overturned Sherman's order and blocked the transfer of land. So no compensation from the Brits after they abolished slavery in the Caribbean, and no compensation from the Americans after the Civil War. So the end of slavery just opened up another chapter in the immiseration of black people's lives in America and elsewhere. And many companies and personal fortunes among the white communities were built on slavery and its aftermath. So, so yes, it's time to have a really serious discussion about reparations and why we need economic justice for black communities. Now, the first thing we need to recognise is that we actually know very little about which banks which trading houses, which manufacturing businesses were actually involved in slavery. So we need independent audits of the banks involved, and independent historians must play a lead part in those audits, and then remedy those injustices so it must be independent audit-led. Then there needs to be a proper negotiation on what level of reparations should be paid, and to whom, and who will be responsible for holding reparation in trust funds for the genuine benefit of the descendants of slaves. What must not happen is that banks and other companies use tokenistic reparation payments as an exercise in whitewashing, while not disclosing the full history of their involvement in slavery or in imperial plunder and pillage. It seems clear that most people in North America and Europe have really very little idea about how much of the accumulated wealth of our nations was built on the back of slavery. For example, very few people in Britain seem to recognise that the Industrial Revolution was built on the backs of slaves picking cotton in the southern states or picking tobacco or cutting sugar in the Caribbean region and so on. 
Now, this ignorance of history has fueled a total misunderstanding of, of economic history, which has had consequences right up to the current day, with many people in Britain seeming to want to return to those halcyon days of the British Empire when free trade was imposed by the cannons of the Royal Navy. So it's, you know, it's the consequences of not knowing about history. So I think the former slaving nations, and that includes Britain and France and Spain, Portugal and the United States, now need to do some reparation history, reparative history, understanding their roles in slavery and in colonialism and in imperialism and how they looted and pillaged the wealth of other countries, especially in the global south. And I'd like to see some of those reparation payments put towards creating proper museums of slavery, colonialism and imperialism, so that these aspects of our past are properly explained without the usual whitewash. How about using the palatial offices currently occupied by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in London, which was originally built in the 19th century as the India Office, how about turning those offices into the British Museum of Slavery, Colonialism and Imperialism? It would be an ideal location to teach children and adults, of course, about this massively important part of the, our collective history. And another final thought, for anyone who thinks the looting and the pillage stopped at the end of empire, they need to think again. As the old empire died, particularly in Britain, a new financial empire emerged around the city of London, with a vast spider's web of tax havens spreading from Hong Kong and Singapore through Mauritius, the Seychelles, Cyprus, Channel Islands, Gibraltar, Cayman, British Virgin Islands and others. And these tax havens allowed the looting and the pillage of the countries of the Global South to continue just in a different guise. So let's hear no more about the looting being a thing of the past. It isn't. And reparations must also be paid for the more recent plundering. Yes, and uh, it's, it's obvious that reparations are part of an essential transformation. Um, we need to see significant wealth transfers. And there's also been some work on how a reparations tax on big financial sectors might look in that respect, a kind of financial transactions tax to help get that flow of money, that wealth transfer back to the right places on an ongoing basis. Kevil Baradia has done some work on a super tax on the $8 trillion a day financial markets and you can find those details in the show notes. But how can we think about combining tax justice and reparations? You know, there are many good reasons for imposing a financial transactions tax, um, especially since so much of the trading that happens daily on financial markets is more about extracting wealth than creating wealth. So I'm all in favour of a Tobin-type tax, and I think I'd go further in the case of paying for reparations. I also think at this moment of um, pandemic, which is really uh, harming poorer countries worst, this is a moment to use some of the money coming from a financial transaction tax to support poorer countries. Inequality has risen to extraordinary levels over the past 40 years, largely because neoliberalism has played this shocking role in increasing inequality because so much of the agenda was about cutting taxes on wealth and on profits and deregulating markets, especially labour markets. So wealth has become much more concentrated in the hands of billionaires than ever before, and billionaires have seen their wealth increase tenfold. The legacy of centuries of institutionalised racism is that a, a wealth chasm has been created between black and white communities. 
Recent research coming out of Duke University in North Carolina has revealed that the average black family with children in the United States owns just one cent of private wealth for every dollar that the average white family with children holds. We need to tax wealth and we need to redistribute significant amounts of wealth towards the descendants of slaves as reparation for the past and present wrongs. I think there's a strong case for supporting uh, Kevin Baradia's idea for a super tax, so I'm all in favour of financial transaction tax and a wealth tax and a super tax on profits. This is what a tax justice agenda needs to look like. Thanks, John. John Christensen of the Tax Justice Network. Now it's time for the TaxCast special feature. The writer William Faulkner wrote, The past is never dead. It's not even past. And many countries are still rooted in the laws made by those who profited from slavery and empire. This month on the TaxCast, we look at how white supremacy is embedded in the US tax system and how tax justice can help address structural racism. I'm talking to Courtney Sanders and Michael Leachman of the Centre on Budget and Policy Priorities and also to David Sorensen of the People's Tax Page. This is all about power and about who makes the rules. There's a long history of systemic racism in lots of countries, in Britain as well, just like in the United States. Um, And when you look at all the laws and who made them, the laws that we're still living by, in Britain we call them the landed gentry or the landowners who made the system work for them. You write, for much of our nation's history, people of colour had little to no power in state legislatures and white lawmakers could set policies that sustained white dominance. There's a really interesting example, which is the oldest example in the United States, which continues to impact on people of colour today, where, and I'm quoting, wealthy white landowners in Mississippi demanded and won a constitutional requirement for a three-fifths vote in both houses of the legislature for all state tax increases. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, sure. The history here is that after the Civil War, In the South, the governments, the state legislatures that came into power, they included former slaves and white supporters of the Union cause, anti-slavery, and those legislatures were dealing with a situation where they, they had immense needs to address. For example, they needed to build school systems for the first time for very large portions of their populations, right? It was a war-torn state. And so what they did was they increased property taxes significantly. The property taxes are the major source of revenue in order to raise the revenue needed to make those investments. Over the decades after the Civil War, as uh, white supremacist former slaveholders came back into power, violently overthrew the Reconstruction era governments and took power they put into place new state constitutions that protected their power and and were deliberately designed to make sure that it, it couldn't happen again, that their taxes would go way up. It would be harder for them to raise taxes on the, the former white slaveholders. One example of this is in Mississippi in 1890, White supremacists, former white slaveholders came back into power. They adopted a new state constitution 
the primary focus of that constitutional debate was to figure out how to disenfranchise African-Americans and to otherwise solidify the power of the white supremacists. And this is one way that they did this. They said, well, we're going to put into the state constitution, which is hard to change, that you have to have a three-fifths vote of both legislative houses in order to raise any taxes at all. And that provision is still on the books today and still making it harder to raise the revenue that's needed to make investments in in poor black communities and in other communities of color in the state. So just as in Britain, landowners have historically wielded almost all the political power and made sure they legislated for highly restrictive property tax limits. And in Alabama, that's also a very interesting example of where that is written into the Constitution, as you say, very difficult to change. Yeah, the history here is similar to the history that I was just talking about in in Mississippi. And so in Alabama, one form that that took is to establish uh, limits on how quickly how much property taxes could be increased. Some of the property tax limits that were put in place in that era are still on the books in several southern states, Alabama, Arkansas, Texas, a couple of others. They're still on the books today. And it's really undermined over a long period of time the ability of these states to raise the revenue needed for investments in communities of color and and other low-income communities. So Alabama still has the lowest property taxes per capita of any state in the country. Think about uh, what 150 years or so of that policy being in place and what the cumulative effect of that lack of investment and the privileges accorded to the landholders who are still very, you know, the value of landholding still disproportionately in white hands, what that's meant. Yes, And uh, uh, why inheritance tax is so important? Yes. One of the things that we know as policy analysts is that we know that white supremacy and structural racism created and continue to perpetuate disparities of power and resources. And an example of that is just thinking about who holds wealth in our country. Right. And... um... When it comes to questions about access to political power and uh, who's involved in the making of legislation itself today, how representative are state legislatures of the citizens they serve in terms of demographics? Still not very representative. For decades, state tax policy was written by almost entirely all white male legislators. Now, that's changed some over the last few decades, but still African-Americans are underrepresented in state legislatures and other groups of color are even more underrepresented in state legislatures. You know, we're recovering from many things. We're recovering from COVID-19. We're recovering from 400 years of oppression And we are also recovering from a looming economic downturn. And one thing we know for sure, and we continue to learn with every economic downturn, is that states have choices. They have a choice point, and that's to cut services and continue to cut their budgets that harm families that are in need or raise revenue. 
raise revenue on corporations, raise revenue on those that are most profitable and the wealthy. And that's a racialized choice. Given the country's history and ongoing biases. Yes, I'm particularly interested about some of the really outrageous spends by some states in the United States on incentives for you know, wealthy companies, large companies to set up in their states. And, you know, we've seen the competition for the Amazon headquarters where states were outbidding other states. And it's really bizarre because in some ways, some of those people would say it's very wrong. You mustn't give money to poor people who've been held back so long by the system. But they've got no problem with subsidising wealthy corporations and <laughs> they shouldn't be offering tax breaks and economic development incentives for profitable corporations who should be profit making without those subsidies. I believe that economic development incentives are costing states about $45 billion a year, ridiculous tax holidays being given, <laughs> really uh, makes no sense at all. Yes, exactly right. The way that states and localities typically go about economic development, as they say, is really backwards thinking and exacerbates the existing inequities. It's a really upside down way of thinking about how do you grow the economy. You just gave away a huge sum of money that you could invest in your community and grow the economy, grow jobs, grow the quality of life using the resources that you have at your disposal. It's a much more sustainable and equitable way to go about it. Yes, investing in people instead of paying sweeteners to big corporations. And there are lots of tax policies states have the power to enact, which could begin to roll back the structural racism that's disadvantaged people of colour for so long. Yes, some specific policies that states could use is to increase taxes on wealth. You can do that through inheritance taxes. You can do that by increasing the income tax rate on very high incomes. You can increase the taxes on income from capital accumulation. We can do that in a number of ways with more progressive property taxes by taxing the stock gains, the income from stock gains that wealthy people very disproportionately receive. And then you can also do things to um, improve the system, uh, how the system works for people with less income. Right. The most obvious one is to stop raising tax revenue from sales taxes, which we know is a really regressive tax and it disproportionately hits poorer people who are so often communities of colour. And then there's an urgent need to reform some of the things not really thought of as taxes, but they are levies, very unfair levies. Health insurance is one good example in the States. Premiums are like taxes people are paying, but they're paying to private insurers instead of paying it to the government for a more efficient public system based on the ability to pay. And the cost of that has been rising for people for decades and it's completely out of reach for millions who can't afford it. And of course, there's also the way that states are funding their justice systems. Yes. So increasingly, especially over the last decade, We've raised funding for our courts and our police through fees 
that are imposed on people who are caught up in the criminal legal system. And the impact of that is often egregious. That often means that people end up in jail simply because they can't pay. People are often held just because they've been arrested, not because it's been proven that they've actually done anything wrong. And uh, so for many reasons, that's a a really egregious system that, that worsens racial inequities. We could shift how we're funding those justice systems to use more progressive sources of revenue. And one other example is we can increase tax credits that are targeted to low-income families that help to turn around these state and local systems so that they're based more on ability to pay. Yeah. You know, addressing climate change and thinking about carbon tax is also important because as our states are having a lot of disasters, you know, whether that be hurricanes and, um, you know, flooding and all these different things, it is also something that states have to address. And the people who are hardest hit or it's harder to recover from natural disasters are communities of color, are people who have low incomes. And so the people who are somewhat responsible for creating all of this CO2 emissions are also contributing to how people are impacted by those things. And and states can take that in consideration because they play a large role in making sure that communities recover from those natural disasters. And budgeting for that is so important. So if we take incentives away from corporations and really think about the taxes that we're putting on things like carbon tax, it can make a huge difference in communities, especially those on the coastal levels of the U.S. Right. We know we need to take urgent measures and states need to finance a green transition. Yet the bigger businesses are in the United States, the more likely they are to be fueling the climate crisis. Over the decades, they've got used to paying less and less taxes and getting more and more tax breaks. And wealthy people as well. They've got a much higher carbon footprint than ordinary people. But the world they live in was designed by them for them. Let's look at the difference now between a person born into a wealthy family in the United States who inherits a lot and they want relief on their pile of cash versus a person whose family doesn't have enough to eat and needs assistance. This is David Sorensen of the People's Tax Page. The inheritance tax. This is the tax that once you hit $11 million, the government takes 40% of it when you, when you pass it on, when you die. But the you know, difference in the way the government treats this and, and lower programs are, are stark when you look at the fact that this tax is, in addition to obviously being easy to avoid, uh, this tax is adjusted to inflation. So every year that $11 million increases. If you then turn around and you look at the other side of the equation, you look at the people who are struggling, you look at our safety net programs, most of our safety net programs aren't adjusted to inflation. And so that means that every year, the safety net programs that we're putting money into, they get less money. You know, our, our dollar is worth a little less and the, the safety net programs have to be supporting a few more people. And you combine that and these safety net programs are devalued over time. Uh, a stark example of this is the temporary assistance for needy families. TANF. And that program was started in 1996. But because it wasn't adjusted for inflation, it has the same funding today as it did then, or a very similar amount of funding today. So what's happened is that program is now trying to support more people against a stronger dollar without any more money. And so that's 
you know, one stark example of how we sort of treat the high end differently in, in raising revenue. We give them breaks compared to how we treat the low end in spending our revenue. We like to, you know, keep it pretty close to the chest. And when the COVID-19 crisis hit, the US government made things worse as well by giving corporates all sorts of cash and also by giving the ultra-wealthy another $176 billion when the pandemic hit through what's called the CARES Act. So they looked after the wrong people again. Yeah, absolutely. So when the American government wrote the CARES Act, they first decided they were going to spend $2 billion on it, something like that. And within that $2 billion, one of the things they decided was that they were going to create a tax break for ultra-wealthy real estate investors. And what it allowed them to do was it allowed them to go back three years and write their losses off from those years. And that was added up to be about $176 billion. The real kicker to this is that the only way you had those losses in the first place was if you were earning more than $500,000 a year, which meant that you were really rich. So in the CARES Act, they wrote in this provision for real estate investors to give them a massive tax break. Uh, you know, it, it would amount to millions and millions of dollars for individuals. At the same time, you know, they weren't really funding those safety net programs that I was just talking about. Right. With the COVID-19 pandemic, how bad is the situation for states at the moment? I mean, the hit on state budgets looks like it's going to be the biggest on record. And you point out, Michael and Courtney, that states really should avoid the mistakes they made in responding to the recession to avoid making a bad situation worse. Yeah, the, the budget shortfalls that states face in this downturn are unlike anything that we've seen at least since the Great Depression 90 years ago or so. States depend on income and sales taxes for 70% of their revenue, and both of those revenue sources have fallen off the table because so many businesses are closed and so many people have been laid off. At the same time, their costs are increasing because more people need public assistance because they need to uh, do a whole variety of things to fight the virus. And the combination of those things has really created an, an extraordinary fiscal crisis for states. We estimate that the shortfalls that states will face in the coming fiscal year will be much worse than anything they faced during the Great Recession, what we call the Great Recession 10 years ago, which at the time was record-breaking and historic. You know, we live in truly unprecedented times. Actually, in April alone, states and localities furloughed or laid off nearly 1 million workers, a number that eclipses such losses following the Great Recession. Yes, and um, states need to be monitoring much better um, their policies in relation to marginalised communities through things like a special commission or task force to review their COVID-19 responses. And you can see how important that is when you realise that in France and Germany, they don't even count how much more likely people of colour are, for example, to be stopped and searched by the police, uh, to be discriminated against in the workplace, in the housing market, or to die of the coronavirus. So they're not collecting data on the communities of colour. So if you're not counting it, you can't 
know if you're formulating good policy. Yes, absolutely. You know, disproportionately, black counties have five times and disproportionately Hispanic counties have three times as many confirmed COVID cases per capita as disproportionately compared to white counties, according to some recent analysis. And in early state and local data, it also showed that Black and Hispanic people were dying of complications from COVID-19 at much higher rates. And so it's important for states to think about the state health departments and how they are tracking the data in ways that follow best practices and are comparable across jurisdictions so that we can understand the crisis impact across race and ethnicity and other identities. Understanding its desperate impacts is a critical step in determining the policy responses that can address the underlying factors that have led to inequitable health outcomes. And, you know, another piece to this is these health disparities exist because too often people of color have experienced years of economic hardship, received lesser quality of health care, and have been segregated into neighborhoods that lack access to things like nutritious food and green space for exercise and clean air and jobs that pay enough for people to have the money or time for recreational activities or to think about their wellness. And so what, what the COVID-19 crisis has really exacerbated and underlined for us is that these health disparities are rooted in a lot of economic but health system racism and discrimination and bias and we need to track these numbers we need to make a case for people to track you know by identities so that we can really show what's happening and who's really being impacted you've been listening to the tax cast thanks for joining us you can see the reports on tax and racial equity from Courtney Sanders and Michael Leachman of the Centre on Budget and Policy Priorities on www.cbpp.org. David Sorensen of the People's Tax Page is on www.peoplestaxpage.org. They have a great podcast there too. Tune in next month for part two of this discussion on how tax justice is racial justice. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next month. Mwema